We are going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. We began a, a series last week um, in which we looked at those verses that preface the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus talks about the dangers of, of praying badly. And he talks about particularly um, the way that the religious elites of his day prayed in a way that he saw as hypocritical, but also the way that the, the Gentiles or the pagans prayed in the way that was mindless repetition. He said, neither of those will do. And he wanted to bring us back to the heart of prayer. And in his explanation of how prayer works, he, um, he gave us this prayer that we has come to be known as the Lord's Prayer. It's only a few short lines, and it's a very uh, quick to read. Many of you know it off by heart. And our intention over the coming weeks is to take it apart almost word for word, but particularly phrase for phrase, to look at it in its depth and breadth and understand it on a deeper level than merely um, the way that we might have learned it in reciting it from school. So I want to read to you from Matthew uh, chapter 6 and verse 9, and we're going to read um, through to verse 13. Jesus said, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I want to ask at the, at the outset, why are we taking this kind of slow and meditative approach to this short and simple prayer. And my intention, I want to be emphatic about this, my intention is not to add complexity and complication to the matter of prayer. I recognize that prayer is difficult for many of us and that it is something you don't want to make even more complicated. And that is certainly not our intention in taking this prayer apart and explaining it phrase by phrase. In fact, it would be a little bit, it would be defeating the purpose since Christ, I think, gave this prayer as a model of simplicity. He gave it to us to cut through all the rubbish and the layers and the traditions that are built up around prayer and give us the essence of prayer. So it would be wrong for us to overcomplicate the matter. And yet, on the other hand, I, I do believe with all my heart that this prayer is meant to be understood um, and has a richness to it that you can explore. And there are a few reasons why I think there is immense value for us in opening it up in the way that we will do in, over the next few weeks. And let me give you a few reasons why I think that's the case. For one thing, there is nothing more important, is there, in prayer and in the use of a prayer like this than that it is understood, that you know what you're saying and why you're saying it. And here's where we have to confront an irony. The Lord Jesus Christ was speaking against the empty prayers of the hypocrites who he saw all around amongst the religious elite. And in combating that, he gave us this prayer. And yet, how easy it is for those of us especially who've known this prayer since childhood or have become very deeply familiar with it, how easy it is for us to rehearse or trot out the phrasing without any sense of meaning or heart and so that there is a disconnection between your mind and heart and your lips and what you're saying. And therefore, the way to kind of mend that, I, I think, is to seek to explore the dimensions and meaning of it and to truly understand what the prayer is communicating and what it's saying about prayer and what Christ is calling us to say to God. And I think about how it's true of any field of knowledge. That the more you know, the more you can appreciate. If you've ever um, spent any time exploring wines, you'll know a little bit of this. Um, you know, whenever you first taste wine, um, the limits of your knowledge will be the ability to distinguish between red and white. And you might swill a glass of wine and take a sip, but definitely that's a red wine. And that's about the limit of your knowledge, isn't it? I'm speaking to those of you who think that rosé is a mixture of the two, right? I know some of you are out there. But as you dis explore more the dimensions of wine, you understand the regions, the grape varieties, and all this kind of thing, your appreciation deepens and grows. I speak as one who has no clue when it comes to wine, but I'm, I'm saying in theory, your appreciation grows. The more you know, the more you, you feel that your knowledge then informs your experience. And there's certainly a sense in which that must be true when it comes to prayer. The more you understand about what Christ was teaching us about the Father and about God and the way to communicate to him, the more this prayer kind of expands in front of you and means something as you're praying it. So that's one thing. It must be understood. 
Another thing I would say then, which supports that, is that this prayer is without question a, a distilled, sort of concentrated articulation of doctrine. And what I mean by that is that there was a phrase that one of the Puritans used. He described this prayer as a body of divinity. And what he meant was if you take the subject, divinity is a subject that you can study at university. And he's saying this is a body of divinity. This is like you might find on a bookshelf, a systematic theology, a great tome, a thousand or more pages long that explains Christian belief um, all the way through from creation through to the end times. He's saying this prayer is in a sense the body of Christian belief boiled down to its very essence, right down to its kind of its core. And... Uh, in that sense, I grew up drinking, but this is before um, sugar was evil, we used to drink cordial, everyone drank cordial back in the day, but of course, cordial has to be diluted, and if ever you make the mistake of pouring cordial directly into a glass and drinking it, it's a mistake you never want to repeat, it's disgusting at that level, right? It has to be stretched and diluted and added, and water must be added, and as it's, then you can appreciate it. In a sense, a prayer like this, I believe it can be recited word for word with intent, with meaning. But in a sense, there's a sense in which this is concentrated doctrine. And it needs to be stretched out for us. And that's what we want to do in the coming weeks. And, or to change the analogy slightly, you know how if you, if, if you uh, open the Maps app on your phone, um, what a privilege it is to have these things. Because my wife and I often reminisce of the days when we were kids when our parents used to take us on road trips and, sorry, we weren't in the same family. We're talking about <laughs> separate experiences, different sets of parents, just to bring clarity to that, although she might get worried. Um, different parents. But I bet this is true of both our families. I assume it was true for many of you, that, that you know, that ordnance survey map would be unfolded and spread all the way across the dashboard, and then the arguments would ensue in the middle of the night when you couldn't read the map and every, when we missed the turning and all the rest of it. But these days we have, we have it all on an app in our phone. And in order to really read it well, often you have to pinch in, don't you? Zoom in and you can take in the grand, the grand sort of sweep of this area you're looking and then get right down into the granular detail. And that's, that is beneficial. It's beneficial to us to be able to get into the granular detail. That's what we want to do in the coming weeks with this prayer. So it, is, it must be understood. It's concentrated doctrine. Let me add one more thing about this prayer that I think is very helpful to understand about it and the way in which it's been used all through the centuries, which is to say that this prayer, I think, has to be taken and is best taken as a shape or a structure upon which you can hang more of your own words. And here's what I mean. When, in 1535, a man called Peter, let me get this right, Peter Beskendorf, who was a German barber, wrote to Martin Luther, who I believe they were friends. Now, if you've ever seen pictures of Martin Luther, and perhaps if Peter Beskendorf was Martin Luther's barber, then you know he wasn't a particularly talented barber. But whatever he lacked in barbering skills, he made up for with his spiritual interest. And he wrote to Martin Luther and asked, could you explain to me a simple way to pray? And Martin Luther responded in a letter which, which was an, essentially, and by design, was an open letter. He thought this is an opportunity not just to instruct Peter the barber, but everyone else who might be, as it were, listening in on our conversation. So he, he, he wrote what was the 15th or the 16th century version of a blog post on the issue, and you can download it. And the title is, How One Should Pray for Master Peter the Barber. And what he does in there is he does something that had been done many times previous to that through the centuries and has been done many times subsequent. He took the Lord's Prayer and he took it phrase by phrase and he showed how you can hang all of your prayers for the day upon each phrase. And in that way, the Lord's Prayer becomes a journey in your experience of God in your daily prayer time. This is something that I have been doing for years at a personal level. I've been using the Lord's Prayer as my main way, my chief way of seeking to pray to God. And it's in that vein that we want to explain this to you in the weeks to come. In other words, I believe that every phrase can be double-clicked. And I want to begin at the start. And this evening, we will be just getting into the first few words. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. I want you to bear in mind that our intention is to explore 
more of what it means to be a friend of God. That's why we're opening up this prayer, because I'm not sure that there is any more important element of your life than your prayer life through which you can experience and encounter the living God. And so many Christians struggle with prayer. So our hope is that as we explore this phrase by phrase, that you will grow in your capacity to relate to God and to know him as friend. And it seems to me that therefore we cannot but pause at this opening to the prayer when the Lord Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. What are we to understand and see and perceive and be changed by in this opening to the Lord's prayer? So familiar to so many of us, yet so profound and radical when Christ gave it to us. Let me show you a few things that are true of this statement. First of all, it speaks of the Father's acceptance of you. It speaks of the Father's acceptance of you. Now, I, I do think that this is probably the most important thing that you can grasp in not just this evening's message, but in the whole series, in a sense. This is the life-changing truth by which you enter into the experience of relating to God. And you must see how totally radical and new it was for Jesus to instruct us to pray in this way. There was a German theologian called Joachim Jeremias who, um, in the last century, who researched all the prayers he could find within the Jewish or rabbinical canon of prayers, from the Old Testament prayers all the way through to the time of Jesus and beyond. And over the thousand years of recorded prayers that he went through, he could find no example of a prayer addressed to God as Father until a thousand years after Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, was himself Jewish. But what you have to appreciate about this is what a radical departure this was from tradition and from the norm for Christ to speak in this way. Partly because this was indicative of his own prayer life. Jeremias also went through all the prayers of Jesus, and what he noticed was that only on one occasion did he not address God as Father. All the prayers, nearly all of them, apart from one, speak to God as Abba or as Father. And not only that, but here he explicitly invites you to also relate to God on this basis. And that is the thing that is so radical and new. And what are we to understand in this? What is Christ showing? And this is why I described the prayer, or why the Puritan described the prayer as a body of divinity. You cannot take these words on your lips, our Father in heaven, without first grasping the profound Christian doctrine of adoption, which is this, that when a person becomes a believer in Christ, when you become a disciple of Jesus and a follower of him and you are saved, to use the parlance we often use, the Bible says that in that instant, you go from being an outsider to being adopted into the family of God. It says this in numerous places. Here's one in, in John's gospel in the first chapter. It says that to all who did receive him, who received Christ, all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is one of the foundational truths and realities that shapes the Christian life. And my concern is that this cannot remain just theoretically true of you in your experience of relating to God. There are things in life that are theoretically true, but that bear no relation to your day-to-day -day experience. I'll give an example. Some years ago, a friend of mine, um, in, a, in a kind of lavish romantic gesture, paid for a star to be named in honor of his girlfriend or fiance. And he, he showed us this certificate, so proud of himself was he, that this star that would probably 
formerly known by a, a, a kind of serial number, was now known by a name that he had chosen in honor of his beloved. And I thought to myself, what a chump. <laughs> because first of all, it's almost without doubt impossible for her to locate this star <laughs> because there are billions of them in the sky. And secondly, no one else is ever going to know. This is, it's, just a, it's just a gesture, a romantic gesture. But it has only symbolic value, no real rooted earthly value in day-to-day -day life. What can she do with this star? Absolutely nothing, right? And it, there's a sense in which sometimes Christian doctrines remain out there like that. You may have heard it. You know, we can call God Father. We're adopted into his family. That is not enough, friend. And the New Testament teaches us that that doctrine cannot remain out there in the sky, as it were. It has to find roots in your heart. This is what Paul says about this experience. He says in Galatians 6, therefore, that because you are sons, and of course when he uses the language of sons or sonship, he's speaking in the collective term of men and women. So it's not, obviously it's not exclusively written to men. But he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, you go from a mere intellectual knowledge to the experience at the heart level, the deepest level of your being, that you are a child of God, so that your spirit resonates with the cry and says, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, in the way that Christ himself prayed. This is something that Paul reiterates in another of his letters. In Romans chapter 8, he says something very similar. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But he says, which is the experience of many people living under a religious code, that your whole life is governed by fear and the uncertainty of whether you can live to please the divine being that you worship. And he says, that's not the experience of the Christian. You don't receive a spirit of slavery in which you are governed by fear. But he says the very opposite is true. He says, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What Paul is describing here is the happiness and liberty at the heart of the Christian faith. Where you are not governed by rules and rituals and laws, but you are governed by the experience of being able to call God your Father. And out of that flows every good thing in the Christian life. The obedience, the desire to please him, the desire to walk with him and obey him and do his will with your day-to-day -day life. Not out of a sense of duty and must and ortery, but out of a sense of wanting to please your father. Whom you call Abba, Dad, Father. My point here, friends, is that this cannot remain mere theory in the life of the Christian this is, in the way Paul describes it, he says, this is your experience. The Spirit of God rushes into the believer and they begin to resonate with, the, with knowing God in this way as a father, not just as a divine Lord. And this, I believe, is utterly transformative. I think I want to show you two ways in which I think this, is, this changes you. On the one way, it changes how you feel about God himself. How you relate to him. You think about the, the contrasting terms that we can use to address God. Both of them are appropriate and right, but we can call him Lord or we can call him Father. Now, I, I use both, and they're interchangeable within the Christian vocabulary. But Father is a development on the prior revelation, which is that he is Lord. Both of them carry with it the sense that God is in authority over you. Jesus never diminished that. He never said that now that you're a child, you can just do whatever you want and kind of, um, you know, rebel or do what, you know, as kids often do. And he said, no, no, to call God Father is to come under his in submission under, as, a, as a child. The same is to call him Lord. But Father adds so many more dimensions, doesn't it, beyond just submission. Adds dimensions of acceptance, of intimacy, of knowing and being known. And this totally transforms the texture and the color of your relationship with God. 
so that this becomes the most important thing about what it means to be a Christian in the life of the believer. I have no doubt that is the, tr- that is the case. Here's how this was articulated by a theologian called Jim Packer, uh, who died just about four or five years ago. He said this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything, that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you understand this? Does this shape and inform and has it transformed your relationship and experience of the living God? I'd also say, in addition to that, that I think this knowledge changes how you feel about yourself. It changes how you feel in yourself, I could say. And what I mean by that is that what Christ was leading us into is the power and the dynamic of what it is to experience fathering. Now, this has to be stressed against the backdrop that we are witnessing all around us in our society at large, in which through the great social experiment that we've indulged over the last 70 or so years, in which, um, in, in which so much of the family has broken down through at the liberation of our laws and the liberation, so-called, of sex and sexual behavior. The social experiment that we've seen in which so many people now are growing up in fatherless homes, one of the most surefire things that has been observed time and time again, and is now without question, is that fatherlessness is one of the most damaging things that can happen in the life of an individual. That's not to say that it's determinative for you, In other words, that it somehow sets your future in stone in any way. And in fact, knowing God as Father in so many ways remedies and reverses the damage that can be done in your life if you've experienced fatherlessness. But this is without doubt true. That the presence or absence of a father, a loving father in a home, is one of the greatest predictors of outcomes in society at large. And that ought to sober us because fathering has been so diminished in its importance in our understanding. And yet what the Bible has said from the start and what we are now seeing, witnessing on a, on a wide scale is that fathering is essential to our wholeness and our development and our healing and our completion as people. That somehow the presence of a father is intricately bound up with our, with our humanity, with our biology, our psychology, with our relationships and sociology, with every dimension of our being is touched by the reality, the presence, or the absence of fathers. And this is not in any way to deny that the same isn't also true of mothers. Don't mishear me. But there's a reason, isn't there, why we need to see this and stress this and why then the Christian message comes in with its transformative power of the fathering of God in our lives and I think that it resonates at the level that we all know and experience that I think all of us understand what father hunger is I think all of us understand what father hunger is even if we've had great dads Because even they fell short in certain respects, right? And how much more if you've lacked that presence in your life? Father hunger, the safety and security and presence that a perfect father could bring, the security, the removal of anxieties and doubts, the sense of having one over you who loves you and cares for you and tends to you, 
What a healing reality that is and can be. And so it seems to me that to know God as Father and to know the acceptance into his family so that you can take those words honestly on your lips and truthfully and call God your Father, that is one of the most transforming realities that we could ever know in life. Bringing healing, bringing wholeness, bringing a sense of security and stability, bringing a sense of humanity again at the core of your being. This is no small thing, friends. When he taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, it speaks of this acceptance that is fundamental and foundational to the Christian life and to the transformation God wants to bring to it. Let me also show you this. It speaks then, related to this as a kind of development on it, it speaks then also of the Father's delight in you. Now, here we are touching even more on the emotional and the psychological dimensions of knowing God in this way. I would say that to be a Christian is first of all, and vitally and importantly, a real substantive legal change that happens in your life. We know this in the sphere of justification. If you know this word justification, it's saying that God stamps you with the seal, not guilty. Your sin has been taken off you and laid upon his son on the cross. That is the heart of the Christian message. But adoption similarly works in that way. It works in that legal sense that you, are not, you were an outsider. You were not a child of God, and now you are a child of God, and you were given the rights of sonship that you are now a co-heir with Christ. And this is not merely a metaphor. It's not saying that you're like a child of God. This is a reality. You are a child of God. In fact, it's a more real form of adoption than even adoption that takes place in this world, which is only temporary by nature. Because this adoption is eternal and can never be undone. But beyond that reality of a legal change that takes place in your life, there is also the sense, as I've been stressing, that this has to then fill your life in an experiential way. And I think that is never more true than in your ability to comprehend and receive the reality of the love of God for you. To know that he delights in you. Now, I think that for many, this is a difficult truth to receive and to accept for a multiplicity of reasons. But I think chief among them, the ones that jump to my mind are these. It can be because you are very aware of a guilty conscience. Now, sometimes that is false guilt and an afflicted spiritual state that needs to be freed. Sometimes, though, it's because you're walking in persistent rebellion against God so that you become like the prodigal son who ran away from his father. And at that point, you feel the breach, you feel the distance, don't you, until you resolve to come home. The striking thing about that story, if you know it at all, is, of course, that the prodigal son, when he decides, I've been running for long enough, I need to turn around and go back home to my father, he rehearses this speech to himself where he's going to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he, he's going through this in his mind. He knows what he's going to say. He arrives. He begins the speech. The father interjects, interrupts, smothers him with love and affection and acceptance. And friend, if you are someone who struggles to know that God delights in you because you're aware that you're walking in persistent sin and wandering away from him, the answer is not difficult to see. He says, come home. And he won't make you slave in the household. He'll give you a seat at the table again. And it'll be as if none of it ever happened. I think another reason, though, why people struggle to accept this love of God in their hearts and minds is, of course, because there is a spiritual warfare element to this. And what I mean by that simply is that the enemy loves to sow discord between our relationship and the Father. And this has been his tactic ever since the beginning. 
The New Testament describes him as the one who has been a liar from the beginning. Because the first thing we, we witness in the earliest pages of the Bible is the distance and discord that's brought in between the relationship of Adam and Eve and their God as their father through the doubt that's sown in which they begin to question whether he is good and whether he loves them and delights in them and means to do them well. And when that doubt takes root in your heart, the distance grows and you can wander. The enemy's lies need to be uprooted and seen for what they are. And the only remedy to lying to these lies is truth. And I'm going to relate to you some of the truths of what the Bible has to say about the Father's love for you in just a moment or two. But let me add one other thing here. I think it's also true that for some of you, it is particularly difficult to accept the notion that God loves you because you, through whatever experiences you've been through in life or however it is that you are wired, you struggle with the idea that you could be loved at all. It may be because of profound pain brought about through rejection or because of the unkind words and statements that have been said over you. I only want to say to you, friend, that the Lord wants to take all of that away. And if those, that damage that's been done to you is like a great seeping wound in your soul, the Lord wants to come and bring his ointment and healing to that wound. And that there is something so deeply transformative in knowing this love. This love can change you. How is it that we can know this love? Well, friends, the Bible is emphatically clear that the Father admires and delights in his kids. And I think this is true simply by virtue of understanding the nature of the relationship itself. That to be a child of God is to come into a love relationship with him or else why would the Bible call us his children? What extra thing would be added here by Jesus introducing us to God as Father if it were not this? That he wanted you to understand how much the Father delights in you. And I know that because I am a father. And I love my children. I adore my children. I would do anything for my children. Most of the time. <laughs> Except in the middle of the night when they want to wake me up and get me out of bed for whatever reason. That's wife's turn. I love my children. It's, 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 an, it's an unbelievable thing to be a dad. But the Bible says, what Jesus says about earthly fathers is he says this. He says, we're evil. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And what he's doing is he's saying, even, even you flawed men, who are fathers here on earth, know what it is to love your kids. How much more does your Father in heaven delight in you? There are other scriptures we can point to that, that unfold this for us. I think, for example, of the 139th Psalm. It's a psalm that I've wanted to turn to again and again in recent weeks. But he says, here the psalmist says to God, he says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. This is a biblical self-esteem. Except that it's not self-esteem, because it's not you esteeming yourself. It is knowing that you are esteemed by the God who made you because he intricately wove you together in your mother's womb. And that blows apart all secular theories about how we experience wholeness and healing in this life because to know the love of God is everything. And he made you. You ever meet a new parent? Parents of a newborn baby, they can gush and talk about their child until you are crying with tears of boredom. <laughs> there is no limit, it would seem, to their capacity to be fascinated with every detail of their child's existence. If this is true of us, how much more is it true of the father who made you? 
It's also true that in coming into the family of God, the New Testament tells us that he chose you. It says, for example, in the first chapter of Ephesians, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. There's our word, adoption. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Which means that no one gets into the family of God by sneaking in through the back door or climbing over the wall. Everyone comes in because Christ or because the Father put his finger on you and said, I want you. I adopt you. To know that you were chosen specifically is so transforming of our sense of health and life as Christians. Let me read you one last verse just to further fill this out. In 1 John 3, it says this, See what kind of see, what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And then he goes on. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, he's speaking there of Christ's coming, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what he's describing there is the fact that God's project for every Christian is a transformational project. He takes you as raw material and his ultimate end and ultimate purpose is to make you like the Lord Jesus Christ who is perfect. And that will not be complete until you see him face to face. And at that point, just as a negative um, film in a camera takes the image of as light is shone upon it, so you will take the image of Christ upon you as you're exposed to his all-consuming light. You'll become like him. That's what the, the Bible says. But it also says, and it says, of course, that the more you understand who he is in this life, it's like you're catching glimpses of that and you're being changed more and more into his likeness. That's the heart of how believers believe that we're changed from day to day into the image of Christ. But the striking thing, the thing that I want you to notice about what John says there is he says this, we are children now. In other words, God does not waiting until you're perfect like Jesus in order to love you and lavish you with his love. He loves you as you are. As you are. And not only that, I believe that the New Testament leads us to understand that he loves us with as much love as he has for Jesus himself. And that ought to strike you as a mind-altering, shocking idea, almost verging on blasphemous, that the Father could love you like he loves Jesus. Here's J.I. Packer again. He says, as God's adopted children, we are loved no less than is the one whom God called his beloved son. You're loved no less than Jesus. In some families containing natural and adopted children, the former are favored above the latter. But no such defect mars the fatherhood of God. He's saying in earthly families, you get these Cinderella situations where the natural children, ugly though they may be, are loved more than the adopted child. He says this is not the case in God's family. And it's even more shocking because the natural child, the Lord Jesus Christ, is beautiful beyond description. And yet, to be a Christian is to be brought into the loveliness of Christ, clothed in who he is as a person so that you are as acceptable to the Father as Jesus is himself. And on that basis, you approach God in prayer. You say, our Father in heaven. How profound that is. How totally transformative it is to enter into intimacy with God with that in your mind. Now, I'm aware that some of you don't feel this love. And I just want to say a few things to you. For some of you, that is because you have not come into this relationship with God. In other words, you're not a Christian. And this is not a privilege that is just blanket given to all humanity. It is a privilege of sonship, of being adopted into God's family. But the offer of sonship is open to any and all who will believe in Christ. To believe in Jesus is to to recognize that his death on the cross for sin 
can atone for your wrongdoing. So it's an acknowledgement of your guilt and the transference of your guilt to him so that he took the punishment for the things you've done wrong, but you take his goodness and his righteousness in, in, in its stead. And then you're a child of God. It is that simple. It's just an act of belief and an act of faith. And friend, perhaps all that's lying between you and this transformative experience of knowing God as Father is for you to finally decide, I believe. But I also recognize that for those of you who are Christian, it may be that you have glimpsed dimensions of this love. You've had a taste of it. But it's not the controlling daily experience of your life to know God loves you in this way. And I just want to encourage you and say this. I think the New Testament leads us to understand that the understanding of this love, the comprehension of this love is, is by design meant to expand as you go through the Christian life. It is possible, I think, to remain stunted in your growth and understanding of it for various reasons. But the privilege of being a child of God is that you get to, as it were, explore the terrain of God's love throughout the entirety of your Christian life and beyond that. Which is why, for example, when Paul's writing to the Ephesian Christians, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And then he begins to explain what he prays for for them. And he says, I pray that you'll begin to comprehend the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God. And what he's showing there is he's saying, look, as Christians, we don't always and immediately understand this love. But there is more to walk into and understand. This is why Paul prays for for that for the believers. And maybe that's what you need to pray for for yourself. God, give me the understanding of how much you love me. And I'll add this, that I think the New Testament leads us to understand that it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian that opens your heart up to this gut-level, visceral comprehension and understanding of the love of God. It's not just something you can read on a page. The Spirit has to invade your being. And the New Testament teaches us that we can cry out for more of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that we need to go on being filled with the Spirit. And I believe that, that, that while the Spirit accomplishes many things in our lives... The main thing that he accomplishes is the kindling of a heart of love and zeal and passion for our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. If your heart is cold to the love of God, the Lord wants to blow His Spirit upon you. So that those dying embers will catch light and become a blaze of passion that is really a response to the knowledge that he is passionate about you. Let me add one final thing here. I've sought to show you how this opener, our Father in heaven, speaks of his acceptance of you, and his delight in you. But I think there is one other element here that is key to this and leads us into the rest of the prayer, which is that it also speaks of his attentiveness to you. Now ask yourself, what is it that you need to know and understand in order for your prayers to be as effective as possible? And many people have supplied what I believe are wrong answers to that questions. Effective prayer does not come down to a correct formula of words. You know how easily we trot out the formulas, like how we end all our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, as though saying in Jesus' name makes the prayer more effective. I'm not sure that it does at all, you're not, if you don't understand what you're saying especially. Or there are many people who will instruct us about ways and methods, posture of prayer, place of prayer, time of prayer, way of praying. And all of that we need to just sweep aside and recognize, no, the only thing, the only thing that really matters when it comes to prayer is the element of faith. And faith is engendered by 
a confident assurance that God is listening. I think that whenever I struggle in my prayer life, it's because at the root of that is doubt, whether the Father is listening. And whether, whenever I experience liberty and freedom in prayer and a desire to pray, it's because I know in my gut the Father's right here listening to me, which he always is, right? Think how vital this knowledge is. We know this on an earthly level, don't we? How key and how powerful attention is for true communication. Now think about this in the negative. What happens when you don't experience undivided attention from another? How easily you shut down and climb up. We know this experience, don't we? I've sat down on many occasions where I've wanted to have a really good conversation with someone, and then every two seconds, it's like the phone's binging, and they're checking, and, and, and they say, go on, go on, just carry on, I'm listening. And the thumbs are going, you think, you're not listening to a single thing I'm saying. At some point, you begin to, you begin to climb up, don't you? The same thing happens in married life when, um, when one spouse opens up to the other, about some heart issue, and the spouse just, just wants to get in with the solutions really quick. It doesn't take the time to give that undivided attention to draw out the issues. It's always a killer of heartfelt conversation. There's death to it. And by the way, and I also think, I was telling the guys this morning this as well, that this is true when it comes to preaching. Do you know that, let's say, at least 50% of good preaching is how well a congregation listens? You think, that's a terrible excuse, Andrew, for awful preaching. But it's true. My experience is that how people listen on any given day radically alters the effectiveness and the power of the message as it's being delivered. And attentive hearers, they draw a sermon out of a preacher. There's something powerful then about attentiveness in, in listening. And you know this, don't you? I remember um, reading, or I think I read about this some, while, some years ago, how um, an experiment was set up in which they put uh, people who did not know each other into a kind of dating situation and encouraged them not to speak but simply to gaze without distraction into one another's eyes and monitored what was going on in their brains and what they reported afterwards. And what they discovered was something totally shocking, that just through the mere act of staring into each other's eyes, they would begin to fall in love. Now I warn you, you go on a first date and you try this, you're probably going to run away, right? Try staring into their eyes without blinking, they'll think you're a creep. But there's something about the setup of the situation, but what it does show you is this, that there is something deeply powerful and resonant with our spirits when we know that this person has, that I have their attention. And you know it, don't you, from your best memories of times with friends or family, that it's those long, lingering, uninterrupted conversations that are allowed to take turns and twists and go where they're meant to go that are the ones in which your heart can open up. And what Christ was drawing us into when he, he, he begins his prayer in this way, look, call God Father. He wants us to understand above all the Father's intimate interest and attentiveness to you in that instant, in that moment. He's already told it to us earlier, just above, when he says that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I don't think that what Jesus was leading us to understand here, by the way, is that the proof of the Father's attentiveness to us is that we get everything we ask for because no good dad does that. My kids ask for all kinds of things. I have one child who has gotten into the habit of getting up before any of us and rummaging through the cupboards to find chocolate for breakfast and then we'll leave the evidence all over his face. And you think children do not know what's good for them. So we don't take as proof that God is listening the fact that every one of our requests is met precisely in the way that we asked it. That's not what's being said here. But what is being said is that the Father not only hears the words, but he knows the need behind the words. 
He is attentive to your heart as well as attentive to what you are saying to him. The Father's listening. And it seems to me that to know and to believe that is to experience and encounter God in a new way. The gospel teaches us that the Father's heart is to give us what we need even before we've asked. The greatest proof of this was the gift of Jesus Christ himself. Before you were born, before you were even a twinkle in your daddy's eye, the Father had given his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you. That confident assurance breeds a certainty within the heart of the Christian that a father who would not withhold his beloved son as a sacrifice of atonement on my behalf, that father is interested in addressing my needs. He's already met the deepest need I have, the need to be forgiven, the need to be saved, the need to be adopted into his family. The rest is the privilege of sonship. And so if there's one thing I want to leave you with, it's this. That the Father wants to draw you into the experience of knowing Him and being intimate with Him in prayer through the confident assurance that He loves you and He's listening to you. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we must begin with a confession that our notions of who you are as a father so often fall short of the reality. And we are hindered in our prayer and our ability to relate to you in our worship. Even so that it's as though sometimes there's a fire blanket covering and smothering us because of the limitations in us, Lord. Our lack of understanding and our lack of belief. But I am asking now, Lord, that you will, by the power of the Spirit, accomplish in hearts this evening a deeper knowledge and awareness of your love and comprehension of that love and understanding of it to bring about change in our hearts beyond just the intellectual grasp of the things that we we've been learning about. Lord, let the love of God be shed abroad in our hearts so that we'll be changed. In Christ's precious name, amen.